Welcome to Creative Labs by Alchemy, a podcast from alchemymerch.com that explores the lives of creators and their experiences bringing their art to the marketplace. Hosted by Greg Kerr. Hey, welcome to the Creative Lab. Uh, I'm Greg, your host, and today I'm here with Josh from Zen Monkey Studios. He is the owner and the head creative for the company, uh, and they primarily focus on licensing of anime, cartoons, video games. Uh, all right, welcome, Josh, and uh, thanks for thanks for joining me today. Hey, Greg, how's it going? Good. Uh, how would you, if you had to do an elevator pitch about what you guys do? How would you describe what the company is? Zen Monkey Studios was founded in 2012. Um, basically, I was a freelancer and I was making shirt designs for other companies. And uh, when something worked right, uh, the checks were nice and big. And then I would have no payment for like five months at a time. So, um, you know, around January 2012, it was my parents and I were having dinner and Mom actually said to Dad and I, like, maybe we need to focus all our energy on turning Josh's freelance work into a company. So um, we became an official uh, LLC company in that summer, July 4th, 2012. And we we sold six shirt designs, and then we shifted into uh, printing my art onto posters. And uh, that actually did okay for the very first uh, Christmas. And, um, it took us about three years and, but I always believed in this, but, uh, we got, we started doing licensing work, um, around 2014, 2015. And once we started working with uh, cartoon network for Rick and Morty, that kind of changed everything from being like, this is building up into being something into, Oh, this is really something. So how do you get into do it? Like what made you decide to do licensing? Cause you're doing your own designs, your own brand. You know, there's that one path where you go, I'm going to keep, you know, I'm going to build this brand that send monkey uh, with in whatever direction you want to do, or you decide, you know, what makes you decide to get into licensing? Cause it's one of those things that I think a lot of people feel is either completely unattainable or you have to be some mega company in order to get involved in this. So like, how do you, what makes you decide to even look into that? And then how do you even go about finding what was your first license? So uh, I, I just felt like there's only so far you can go if you're doing like original stuff um, where no one has any idea who you are and like parody stuff or goofy things so like there's sites um that still exist but not nearly as popular as it was back in like 2010 2011 called like t fury or ripped apparel or shirt punch and um you know they they were attracting a lot of pop culture themed art and designs and i would submit to them and i would get picked to be part of their 24-hour sale and I would get a dollar per shirt. And um, it did really well, but I felt like for my own brand, like I can only do so much. And I, I would just sit by myself at night and do the math being like to make a million dollars in a year, I'd have to sell like 
50,000 shirts <laughs> at $20 each. And I sold 30 shirts the first month we are live. So I don't have any idea how this is going to be sustainable to like have, you know, have a salary and have a family. And I, I really just felt like if I want to get into like comic book stores with pop culture products, I need to have a license. So um, I didn't do it correctly the very first time, but I went on to companies' websites and I would like contact like, like head of production or head of like, manufacturing or whatever I saw. And one of the first companies I did that to was the Jim Henson company. And they spoke, uh, I showed them what I was capable of doing and they responded saying like, we can have a talk if you're interested. This is not the normal way, but your, your art is cool. So let's talk. And she spoke to dad and myself on the phone and the licensed lady said um, to have a Jim Henson license, it would be, uh, $15,000 minimum guarantee. Are you guys okay with that? And we didn't know anything back then. So we're like, that makes sense to us. Let's do it. And she's like, oh, wait, really? <laughs> so yeah, we signed the papers. And then end of 2014, we were making Fraggle Rock of all things as our first licensed stuff. But that was also the year at New York Comic Con that Justin Roiland found our booth and one of my friends was helping me sell and I was taking an order at the other side of the booth and he's like, uh, Josh, you should get over here and talk to this guy. And uh, Rick and Morty season one ended like a few months ago when they were in production for season two. But I did see Rick and Morty after they did, they promoted like the Christmas episode on YouTube. And then um, I liked it, so I started actually watching it. On, I recorded it on my DVR, and I would watch bootleg uh, downloads with my friend when we visited Yosemite for our 30th birthday. And um, so Justin was there, and he was like, hey, I'm Justin Roiland. I created Rick and Morton. I'm like, I love that show. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, yeah, Rick, uh, and he like, does the voice really fast. And I said, how do I get your license? And he's like, that's why I'm here. Oh, he says, like I'm looking around for companies that I think are unique and cool. And I think you guys actually fit that. So we kept in touch and then uh, he was promoting loot crate. And I'm like, actually I made a, I made two shirts for loot crate and he was like, really? So then he emailed his manager of licensing at cartoon network and said, I want you to talk to Zen monkey studios to do, to get the Rick and Morty license. And, um, she was like, okay, really ten, like, is $10,000 okay? I'm like, that's cheaper than Fragile Rock. <laughs> yes. So we did, and that like changed everything for us. Cause, you know, when season two came out, like the first three episodes were like leaked by accident. So like there was blips and shits merchandise all over the place that wasn't official. And like Justin had my cell phone at this point. He was like, get this to market. And I'm like, do you want me to like fly to LA and like watch season two animatics so we can be ahead of these bootlegs? And he's like, yes, great idea. And we did that for uh, seasons two and three. Um, but then, you know, of our relationship with Justin and Rick and Morty and basically being the only licensee outside of Oni Press actually making Rick and Morty stuff. Uh, Oni Press contacted us and said that we should work together. And we did like some Rick and Morty collab boxes with us and uh, Jinx Apparel because they had the like plush doll license. 
And like we did like the Meeseeks mystery box, like Christmas special. And we sold out in like four hours. Wow. So with Oni press, they kept liking to uh, working with us and they had the invader Zim license. So they basically set up, allowed us to set up an appointment with Nickelodeon to start talking about licenses for their shows too. And once, basically once Nickelodeon got on board, everyone started going on board with us. Yeah. Cause I mean, Nickelodeon is a huge company and to kind of go back with, you know, you, you talk to the Jim Henson company and they say it's a $15,000 minimum guarantee, you know, like what, what does that actually, what does that mean? You know, when a company, when somebody, if somebody's looking to get a license, whether it's a huge property or a small property, what does a guarantee actually mean that you're kind of signing up and agreeing to? Yeah, so uh, and the minimum guarantee in MG is a contractual uh, price that we're willing to pay the licensor to have the license saying, no matter how much we sell, you're, we're paying you this much money. So like with 15000 um, for 10% royalties, we're basically saying we're, we think we're going to make $150,000 the next two years, and 10% of those sales, $15,000, will cover. But if we don't hit $150,000 in sales, you're still getting $15,000 minimum guarantee. Okay. And then if you sell more than that, then let's say there's – so it's got a $15,000 guarantee, and then there's, let's just say, for example, a 10% royalty. So essentially you're paying that 10% royalty trying to fill that gap to what that minimum is. You right. don't sell enough. You still owe 15000 Too bad. So you sell beyond – that amount at that point, are you basically paying 10% on the sale, you know, of all of the money made on that product beyond that point? Right. So okay. after the minimum guarantee, the royalty basically kicks in. So if we made $15,001, now we're paying 10% of $1. Um, and then it just keeps going. And then we have to pay the, we have to do the reports every, uh, every three months. So quarterly, and then uh, a month after that, we get the money and we send them royalty checks. Okay. And when, so, you're, when you're working with a company, so you, you, know, you go about this getting the Jim Henson one in kind of a not the usual channels, um, and you guys sign the contract, what happens? I mean, do they, you know, I mean, I know with you guys that you do your own, you like to do your own spins and think of new creative ways to approach these properties. But, you know, you sign on, do they give you asset you know are they like hey here's a bunch of kind of stock imagery to choose from make things from this or like how does that how does that work once you actually get a license for something like can you do you know any kind of fraggle rock thing you want or you know do they approve things like how how does that work oh it it all depends on the client so uh fraggle rock did allow original art to be made uh it just needed to be approved there's an entire approval process, even with, with uh, assets that they give you, which is usually called style guides. So um, uh, basically, they just want to make sure that you don't go off-brand too much. But then there's other clients where you have to follow the style guide to a T, and you don't have any creative freedom, um, no matter how hard you try. So sometimes some products that you see from us is us like really – testing the limits of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Um, and that's also why uh, we see with some fans being like, oh, it's the same pose that you see on a thousand shirts. And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason for that. But right, I you're, can't say you're that. Right. 
<laughs> like these are the assets they'll allow us to use. Um, so, you know, you guys make Fraggle Rock. At this point, are you making, we're still making primarily t-shirts or are you doing pins or like, what was the product that got, you know, Justin stops by the booth and goes, hey, this stuff's really cool. Like what, what was the product that you guys had made that kind of drew him in? Because at that point, obviously Rick and Morty, it's been on TV, but it sounds like there's not really a lot of merchandise that's really getting made. Um, and he's actually seeks, seeks it out and goes, hey, your stuff's cool. Can you do my show too? You know, like what was it that drew, drew him in? I think it was just the, um, you know, even though we're small, we try to go for a, a level of quality, even if it's like the booth display or interactivity with the customer. Um, so I think it was that combined with um, just original stuff. So we were doing original uh, Fraggle Rock stuff and selling them. And um, I think he was like, I've never seen fraggle rock of all things like that i kind of like this this is unique um because he was really looking for companies that would make something cool and not found like at just a hot topic because back then that was a client it wasn't hot topic or spencer's gift it was a company called ripple junction and they're big they take care of all those stores so um he kind of came to me being like, can you like, they're not doing anything. They made one shirt with uh, Rick pulling the eyelids from Morty. And like, that's it. That's that one shirt in the market at the time. And I'm like, I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll throw on our site. You know, people were bootlegging us left and right too. But um, I just remember like, we're at a convention, like Boston comic-con, I think. And people are all in Rick and Morty costumes and they're holding up our shirts. And I take photos and I texted the photos to Justin and he'd be like, you're the only one selling our stuff. So that was before Pickle Rick. But, yeah. you know, um, yeah, that's just what resonated with him is he he really he actually does really care about the audience because he really just wants to make cool, nerdy uh, cartoons with, you know, dick and fart jokes. But uh um, yeah, he really just like, I, he's like, I don't care if I get a cut of the sales. I just want to have something cool for the, for the fans. And I also want to like get some jobs to the artists that worked on seasons one and two with me be, to get them a few extra bucks. Yes. And so you're doing, so Rick and Morty, I mean, you know, obviously at the time when this, this opportunity comes up, you're probably not thinking what Rick and Morty is going to become, you know? Uh, and I know we met, I think the first thing that we did together was, a, of course, a Pickle Rick pin for San Diego Comic-Con. At this point, I don't even know what year it was. Twenty. I, I think it was 2017 when season three was about to air. Yeah. And, you know, and so you were doing, you know, obviously, like we, we spoke, you're already doing pins at this point. Um, but you'd, you'd been doing, like, when did you start making pins? So when you got the Rick and Morty license, was it? okay, I'm allowed to do t-shirts. Uh, you know, how does that work? Or, you know, just because, just because you get a license doesn't mean you can make like literally anything, you know, you can't go make notepads and every little right. thing your heart desires. Like when you get a license, did they say you can do X, Y, Z products? You know, how did pins get involved? So, uh, I really like pins as a fan. Um, I just like the whole concept of something shiny to collect and trade and wear on a lanyard when you're at Disney world or, you know, the Olympics or whatever. And, um, I just, 
I don't know. Like, you know, I'm at conventions all the time and I see people wearing lanyards that, you know, weren't really decorated because, you know, back then the pin craze like was just starting. So I just said to my contact, I'm like, can we amend our license to include like pins? I just really believe in pins. I, I think there, this is an untapped market for Rick and Morty. Um, and she went like radio silent for like three months. And I'm like, we're making some prototypes. So we made some prototypes with the sure people that I worked with. And, uh, I'm like here, like I'm sending you samples. And we did, we sent them samples. And finally, after three months, they responded being like, sorry for like being silent, but, uh, we just wanted to make sure if it was like stepping on any toes. Yeah. Um, we're going to amend your contract and allow you to sell pins. And, um, yeah, the pins, like pins went from being 0% of our sales to like 33% in like half a year. And, um, then we started like just going to our other license, uh, licensors to get uh, agreements of just pins and accessories because, you know, we're saying, look, like Ripple Junction will take care of shirts for Hot Topic. And if you want to go to the Gap directly or Old Navy, let them do the shirts. But there's this market for pins. And they're like, okay, sure, whatever. And then, and then you know, that allowed Nickelodeon to hop on, which allowed, man, like some anime companies to jump on. And, you know, like first with Nickelodeon, we just had Airbender, Korra, and Invader Zim. And then like Double Dare. And they were so happy with what we were doing for Airbender and Cora that they brought us back into the offices in Manhattan. And they said, we want you to work on SpongeBob and Ninja Turtles. Is that okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, that's okay. Yeah. You're like, obviously. Yeah. We are into that. Yeah. So, you know, then we basically amended that agreement. So it's almost all of Nickelodeon and uh, they've been supportive like for four years now, like very much. So, um, unfortunately there's other pin companies that are getting the same license as us, um, which, you know, my insecure self is like, but I'm the pin guy <laughs> yeah. for Nickelodeon. What's going on here? But, you know, when you think about it, like for licensed companies, like you can get Nickelodeon shirts that are licensed on Amazon using Amazon's print on demand. You can mm. get official Nickelodeon stuff at Hot Topic and Spencer's from like probably two different manufacturers. You can go to Old Navy, you can go to the Gap and get SpongeBob stuff. You can go to SpongeBobMerchandise.com and get SpongeBob stuff. Um, so, like, what's another three to four licensees? And that kind of, I think, as you picked up, we focused on trying to take what we're given, the assets, and make something different. Um, especially because we would go to a comic book store and we would see Rick and Morty pins from another company. And we're like, what about our pins? We're like, we have like 10 times more options as they do. And they're kind of like, well, we already have this company as one of our vendors for the last 15 years. Mm. It's just going to be a lot of work to get another company just for pins when we can already get the pins, whatever we need. So that was the moment where I was like, we have to differentiate ourselves or we're going to like not get wholesale clients because they're just going to go for convenience and um, that's kind of when we shifted our mentality to our pins as, yes, an accessory, but also like something to trade and collect, like baseball cards. Yeah. And what makes you like, what makes you decide to go after a property? Because at this point, 
you know, you've, you know, the Rick and Morty thing that was kind of like, you know, I, I don't want to say luck, but like one of those moments where you were doing something the way you wanted to do it, following, you know, your design, what, you know, the way that you wanted to do Fraggle Rock, somebody recognizes that. It just happens to turn into something that is a big thing, which then opens, like I said, the door to Oni Press. And then they're saying, oh, hey, we do Invader Zim. Maybe you should talk to Nickelodeon. That all of a sudden you've got Nickelodeon. It's a massive company. You know, everybody knows SpongeBob and Ninja Turtles and all these things. And you're dipping your toes into that. You know, at this point now, what makes you decide? Because even within Nickelodeon, there's a gazillion properties. You know, so what makes you decide we want to make pins for, you know, this one specific show. I want to do, um, you know, the Jenny robot one or, you know, or whatever it is, like what, what's making you decide to make the products you want to do? Is it based off of the nostalgia for the things that you grew up with or like what, what makes you choose go after certain things? It's a combination of all of that. It's a combination of nostalgia. Unfortunately, uh, you know, that also means my, my love for the Ninja Turtles does not equate to <laughs> sold products. So, you know, like I'm kind of blown away by how many Ninja Turtle prop, uh, licensees there are when we actually struggle. Um, it does not do well on Amazon. It does not do that great on our site, except for the super fans who really saved us last year <laughs> during the pandemic. They were the Ninja Turtle fans. And... Um, and then, but they do do well at comic book stores. So one of our distributors, there's big orders for Ninja Turtle only stuff. And it's like, it's really hard to gauge. But um, then with like, you know, we also have the license for um, the Loud House, which is supposed to be like Nickelodeon's number two animation um, for kids of a certain age. And I kind of want kids to buy our stuff too. But, uh, you know, we're scared to pull the trigger because if we can't sell Ninja Turtles very well, how are we going to expect these guys? But we're trying to, like, prepare us for the future because with Ninja Turtles and whatnot, nostalgia can only get you so far. You know, then we do stuff like Megalobox um, with Viz Media. Um, We spoke to TMS Anime directly. They sold the uh, American rights to uh, Viz. And um, we spent a $5,000 minimum guarantee. It's winning awards on Crunchyroll and it's winning awards for all these uh, anime like sites and whatnot. Um, you know, we had a good premiere at New York Comic Con with our like limited edition stuff, and then it stopped. Like, just the sales never came. Even when season two aired a few months ago, you know, the very last pins on our Amazon are still on Amazon because no one's looking for any Megalobox uh, product. And it's like, it, it was like shocking. Then we would do um, something with um, the number three uh, superhero uh, company, which is the Valiant, Valiant Comics. <laughs> and um, my assistant at the time, um, you know, she has friends that are comic book authors and she said that they're really building something up. And I'm like, okay, let's, you know, if they feel comfortable, because, you know, Bloodshot's coming in movie theaters in 2020, let's, let's do this in 2019. <laughs> and no, like when we told buyers what we had, they, they actually laughed at our guy Mark on the phone being like, no, we meant like Batman or, or Spider-Man. We don't want Bloodshot. Oh, so 
you know, that was a big loss for us because of the minimum guarantee. But then, um, you know, so like we're trying to be a little bit more conservative and trying to find properties that there is no nostalgic connection because, you know, you could be right. Like Jojo's Bizarre Adventure was not, you know, it existed since the eighties in Japan, but it didn't really come into America until like, I want to say 2014 or so. And that was massively successful for us. But then Airbender wasn't successful until it got re-released on Netflix. And now it's number two for us. And, you know, and then with things like uh, Teenage Robot and Danny Phantom, you know, with all these other companies getting the pin license for Nickelodeon, they're talking about Airbender, SpongeBob, Ninja Turtles, Zim, sometimes Korra, but they're not talking about Teenage Robot. They're talking about Rugrats, talking about Ren and Stimpy. Talking about Hey Arnold, but they're not talking about Odd Parents, Danny Phantom, Teenage Robot, and you know some of these other things. So I'm like, let's try because there is no market. And then the super fans find us and <laughs> blow out our inventory as if it's like you know better than Rick and Morty, better than SpongeBob. Yeah, I mean JoJo was an interesting one. I you know I'm not really up on a ton of anime in general, um, and. My wife and I, Vicky, uh, she she started watching JoJo after you got the license because you started sending over products and uh, the names. There were so many characters. I'm like, we have to watch this. I have no idea. I'm just super confused with all these people that's going on. And the show is so ridiculous and amazing. If anybody hasn't watched JoJo, uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, definitely suggest checking it out uh, where Vicky got like obsessed with it and we blew through it. I so fast i'm still confused there's still so many people but like you know what makes you go get jojo that wasn't it wasn't on netflix you know it ended up i think you know going to netflix at some point along the way but you went and got this show that i don't think was necessarily getting a ton of attention was it just were you like i like this show i think it's cool uh, let's try and see if we can get it i think the pin world or the pin industry is sort of like first to bat for meme culture. Okay. And um, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is really popular for the memes as, as well as its bizarre plot. <laughs> um, so, you know, our head of uh, art, Jeremy, he knows his anime and video games. And I said, hey, we need to get into anime. And like... W- like I know of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure from this Capcom fighting game from the '90s or early 2000s. Like, like what's going on here? And he's like, "Oh, well, they're doing an anime adaptation of the of the manga." Um, I'm like, "Yeah, but the manga came out like in '87, right?" He's like, "Yeah, but the anime's now, so uh, it yeah, it's good." And like, there's all the memes are based on the internet are from the anime. So hmm. yeah, you, double whammy: you get meme pins and you get anime pins. So I was like. All right, and then I uh, I read some of the manga, and I'm like, this is so weird. I think I li- I think I like this, and then I watched some on Hulu, and I'm like, yeah, let's let's do this. And um, the creator uh, Araki San or Araki Sensei, yeah, um, you know, they said they were very worried about him because he doesn't do very well with approvals. And then he saw our pins, and he's like, are they going to make more of these, or <laughs> is this it? And they were like, he wants to know if you're going to make more pins. I'm like, yeah, we're going to make more pins. And like ever since then, he basically 
everything we submit to them is approved because they just want to make sure that the creator is happy with us. So, um, yeah, it was like Jeremy confirming that there's an entire meme culture and anime and like those two combined is like a powerhouse. And I think, you know, the stock market's learned the hard way that the meme culture is like just a part of society now. Yeah. Get and, double down um, on your GameStop on uh, GameStop and just keep holding. Right. You know? Yeah. Um. So <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. People are going, ah, to be continued. That's a funny meme. Yeah. I'll get that for 10 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing you've kind of hinted on, um, you know, because there's a lot of people that do fan art, and you know, I, I definitely understand anybody that's done art, you know, in their life at any point. You get inspired by different stuff. You try and draw your favorite characters. You know, there's obviously uh, a certain feeling that if it exists on the internet, it's it's a free for all. You know, and they do fan art, but you can't sell a fan art pin, you know, legally on Amazon. You know, uh, so with doing licensing, that's opened up other channels for you. Like you can officially sell to a store, uh, to a comic book store, or you can sell on Amazon. And, and, you know, has that helped, you know, in terms of getting the word out or moving product, like having those platforms by having official, official licenses, um, yeah, because there are a lot of fans that love artist interpretations of the characters. And then there's probably just as many fans that just want something official and like supported by like Capcom. Like, for example, our Ace Attorney pins, if you go in the Ace Attorney subreddit, they're just so happy that there's another company starting to make them something. But, you know, before us, they would get the fan-made bootleg or whatever uh, pin designs of the same characters and we just happily join the collection for the fans um but yeah like on amazon <laughs> we have our problems with amazon because they don't get the message always that we're official um but it also kind of validates what we've been doing and then like other stores say hey you're selling on amazon like we want in on this and yes, it, it, that's kind of like kind of what I wanted with uh, licenses in the first place is that like there's only so much and so far you can go like licensing stops like it's a trade off like it stops that it opens up new doors for, you know, revenue and money, but also you lose a bit of your creativity. So you have to be creative in different ways. So while an artist or a fan can make the characters look any way they want, I can't do that. So I need to like figure out other uh, methods of uniqueness that also makes us stand out from other licensees like fig pins that basically take the art from the style guide and that's it. They just say, here you guys go. It's three inches tall. Right. Collect them all. And they're nice, but they're also the style guide art and nothing, no unique take on it. So when I've seen you've gotten into doing some different kind of design series, you know, so I think one that really comes to mind that I see a lot with your stuff is you do these, you know, it's like a gold pin screen printing, one color black, and then a glitter background with some epoxy going on, on it. Um, you know, what made you, yeah, I feel like that, or I think you had a diamond series kind of shape one you're trying, like made you dip into that. And when you're taking something and you're like, here's the property, I'm not using the style guide. I'm using 
this art, we're kind of designing it as a one color. We want to do glitter. We want to do this weird thing. You know, what made you decide to get into doing kind of like a series vibe? And did you have any pushback from the licensees, licensors when you were coming up with these kind of new, new takes on, on the property? Uh, well, basically, uh, the Diamond series is, one, is the one I believed in. Uh, I just liked the composition of diamonds, and I thought that would resonate with everyone. <clears throat> but uh, we started that with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and Lupin the Third. And people and Japan is very, very um, uh, specific when it comes to the details and eyes. And they want all the white in the <laughs> eyes, no matter what. And when you make a pin, if it's not sealed in within um, metal, you're going to have to print it on. But then if it's a certain size, the print might turn into a blot. <laughs> so there's all these uh, physical impossibilities that all these Japanese properties want us to do that I said, this is, this is going back and forth for this diamond series forever. Let's um, here's, here's this hex. I like hexagons. I also like gold glitter background <laughs> screen print done. Let's submit. And then they, uh, Jojo approved of them. So those were first to market before the diamonds and they sell like crazy. They're they're just beautiful because it's the art cleaned up with shininess. And <laughs> anime fans love shiny and pin collectors love shiny. And it just became like a match in heaven for us. And um, it became a point where we're like, okay, we have proven, uh, we have found a, a working formula that's proven successful for, with almost all properties that we put, do this with. And um, and now became like going to like Funimation saying, okay, we have JoJo's Bizarre Adventure um, with Viz Media. Now we want Cowboy Bebop. And they're like, look, Cowboy Bebop is doing well. So how about Soul Eater? Well, Soul Eater's doing well, and Cowboy Bebop is doing well. What else you got? Attack on Titan. Let's do it. And then you know we just and we just say we will do this, the Golden Series. And then once we do that, we will expand beyond. So they they kind of now know what we're going to make with, uh, for them. And it kind of like, like made this like a reassurance that like, we're going to give them quality plus more. And also like, this is what it's going to look like. So you're not going to be confused why, you know, the character is just, you know, black and gold. Right. Right. And you know, at least when you're doing something like that, like I said, you're breaking it down to, you've got the line work, something shiny. I mean, you can't beat glitter, add some epoxy on there. Everything shines. It looks good. Um, so when you've got, you're saying like you got Cowboy Bebop and Soul Eater and these other things, you know, and when you're working with a new company that you, that you start with and you're showing them this stuff, you know, were they suggesting or was it, you know, the relationship was going kind of well and you go, hey, uh, what else do you guys have, you know, that we might be interested or might have a chance at getting, you know, because, you know, it sounds like originally you kind of did things how you want to do it. That opened a door. And then you kept on doing things the way you wanted to do it, like according to your vision, that opened the next door. You know, to the point it's not like you just jumped in and said, hey, give me SpongeBob, you know, some random thing. You, you've worked your way up by kind of continuing with that vision. So when you're going to these companies now, are they trying to say, like, what are you interested in? It? Like, hey, here's everything we have, or do you still kind of have to poke – 
to get different properties and go after them like really targeted? It's a mix, you know, like with um, Nickelodeon, they were kind of like, we have Garfield. Do you want Garfield? And I'm like, I, I don't know like who in my world would buy Garfield from us outside of Amazon, maybe. And they go, we got South Park. And I'm like, okay, that I could, let's work with South Park. Um, and then I'm like, what about like, I don't want Beavis and Butter, but I want Daria. And they're like, well, okay, send us an application. And then I'm like, I don't have time to do all this right now. So then I lost it to, uh, who's that other Brooklyn pin company? Pin Thrill. Pin Thrill is doing Nickelodeon and Daria and Beavis and Butter now. So I was like, oh, well, well, whatever. We don't need a seventh pin company doing it. Yeah. Um, but then with Funimation, it's like we started going like, we like okay, we, we kind of want My Hero Academia. And they're like, nope. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I want Cowboy Bebop. They're like, sure, okay, no problem. Um, and then, you know, Soul Eater was because we were scared after Megalobox flopping for us to do something with no history. And they were trying to sell Fire Force to us. They said, if you're worried about Fire Force, the creator of Fire Force also made Soul Eater. So, you know, um, when I was, we didn't even talk about the licensing expo, but when I was at a licensing expo, I saw people with soul eater tattoos and I was like, okay, maybe (laughs) we should do If people are going to tattoo their body with these characters, then let's do some anime pins of them. Um, so yeah, you know, but then I would go to Sega and I went and I'm like, I want Sonic the Hedgehog, but if Sonic the Hedgehog is too hard to get, I'll get Altered Beast. And they're like, they're like, no, actually Altered Beast is hard to get. You can have Sonic. That real Altered Beast. You're like, uh, yeah. what am I going to do? Golden, give me some golden axe. Uh, yeah, I've got three designs yeah, so and I'm done. All the old Sega stuff from the eighties and early nineties is actually harder for approvals. Interesting. So they said, just focus on Sonic. And then, um, but then, you know, I go to Sesame Street. I want Sesame Street. They're like, yes, hmm. Sesame Street, rock and roll, do it. <laughs> you know, do some adult stuff for us. Um, but, you know, I go to Sony or whoever has the rights to the Beatles, and they're like, oh, well, you know, we already got people for that. So, yeah. So for somebody that's interested in getting into licensing, you know, because like I said, it's a definitely like a different path. And I, you know, and, and one thing, like I said, I like about you guys is you guys are like, a small family team and you've worked your way up to these massive properties, you know, where people probably think like, Oh, there's some, you know, mega faceless corporation fig pin kind of who the hell knows. There's a thousand people, um, you know, but you, you started out, you guys, you know, it's, you know, family business, you and your dad. And I don't know who, else, if you guys had anybody else involved in the beginning, um, but what, what do you suggest to somebody that's like interested in getting into licensing, interested in doing that, you know, outside of a pandemic kind of year where, you know, there's a licensing expo or something like that. Like how does somebody, what would you suggest somebody do if they're interested in getting a property or getting involved in that? Uh, the first thing to start is don't like, if like, if you have no history of having of running companies, then you need to build a few years experience of your company so that when these companies do background checks on you, they know that you're at least trying, I want to say, or there is a source of revenue coming in so that you're not a big risk or a time suck for them. Um, we are sort of experiencing people coming to us because they could not get a license for their online e-commerce company that they started seven months ago. Um, and so instead of get their own license, they were 
told to just buy from people like us. Hmm. Um, so th- these people really want to factor in like your history. And if you have a foot in the market that you're trying to do stuff with, and then also like, okay, like let's say you are offering shirts they might say you can do shirts, but it can only be on your site. It can only be at like your booth at a convention. It can only be this and that because we already have relationships with these other companies that take care of the malls. They take care of Bloomingdale's or Gap or whatnot. So like, like that's already taken care of. We don't want to ruin our relationship with these other companies. Um, so like uh, factor all that stuff in and, you know, understand because those other companies exist, like find your niche. Like if I don't have the keychain license for some of these anime properties, because there's another keychain vendor that already exists for them and they don't want me to step on their feet. So like, if you're like, look, I, I made NFT site and you know, we brought in $10 million. I want to do, uh, I'm not tops, but uh, I do want to make like collectible Disney NFTs. You know, they might say, sure. Minimum is blah, blah, blah. But you got permission now. So, yeah, I really think it's really uh, finding uh, a hole in the market and filling it in. Because when we did shirts and only shirts, it was a lot harder to get licenses then pins and then we were filling a hole that needed to be filled for the pin market and then now that everyone's doing pins um our name recognition for the past you know seven or so years of doing these um kind of offsets the fact that yes there might be like a pin club or fig pin or pin thrill or bio world which is the, an accessory company already doing that property because we're saying we do all this for all these properties right now, but look how different our version is. So you can kind of like run alongside it and have it at the same time. I mean, it, you know, right. if yeah, like hot topic and box lunch have come to us to, you know, buy our pins at wholesale, but they're already selling, you know, Jojo bizarre adventure pins, or they're already selling SpongeBob pins. They just want, our versions because they think it would complement what they already have rather than cannibalize what they already have. So if somebody, you know, if they're looking at it, you go, obviously you can't jump into, I mean, I don't know if anybody wants Rick and Morty at this point, but uh, you know, you can't jump in and off the street and say, Hey, I want to get a Rick and Morty license or I want to get soul eater or attack on Titan. You know, is it kind of, you know, do you feel like going with, not to say that Fraggle Rock is like a small property by any means, but, you know, something more attainable helped, you know, do you feel like that was worth getting your foot in the door with something like that was probably the smart move versus going, attempting to go after something big, even if it, even if you guys had been established in some other sense of t-shirts as a personal brand or whatever it is, um, would you say like go for something attainable to learn about that world first or you know what would your advice be there if you if you already have like a history of sales like you know i've been selling on my site for three years and i've been selling amazon for two and i've been going to conventions and blah 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 um if you are able to prove all that um then i say um yes go for something that is affordable and go for something that um, you believe in and also go for something that is obtainable because um, it's neglected in the market. You know, 
I'm not doing teenage robot because I, you know, no one else is doing it. I said, I believe in this and no one else is doing it. Right. So let's go give it a shot. And what's a typical, so let's say, obviously every property is going to have different percentages and things like that. But to give a, you know, if there was a blanket idea, I think you said Fraggle Rock was, uh, what was it, 15 grand, and then there's a 10%. Uh, what's kind of a, I don't want to say your average or a kind of typical sort of setup of of a royalty that you would be paying? Because, you know, like I said, some people might not understand the royalty. You're paying that on every sale that happens with that product, you're, you're paying that percentage. Like what's a typical kind of range of a, a royalty percentage? The, the royalty percentage for us these days is probably an average of 12 to 13%. Um, it was 10% in the past, but we grew or, you know, our uh, ambitions grew. So they said, if you can't afford a, a certain minimum guarantee amount, then we want a larger royalty count. So basically okay. they're saying like, if you can, hit a $5,000 minimum guarantee, well, then we want 14% going forward. So there's that. Um, the industry standard for what we're doing is probably between 10 to 15 or 16%. Uh, when you're going lower, that's a good, de- that's a good deal for you. It uh, basically means that the company is like, we, not, we might not make a lot of money, but they're doing something for us that no one else is doing, so let's give them a go. And if they're asking for more money, it's like, these guys are legit, but they're a small company, so they have to have just have more of a royalty uh, beyond the minimum guarantee. So they're kind of balancing a little bit. You know, it's kind of specific based off the company and what you have to offer, in a sense, or what they think they might get out of it. Where they're going to balance out that that somewhat flat fee, you know, that minimum mm-hmm. guarantee matched with the percentage. But you know, like let's say, I forget when you got JoJo. Um, I would imagine that you kind of ended up blowing past that minimum guarantee. Um, we did. And I assume like in that scenario are the companies, you know, when you kind of blow past that, that amount that initially they're thinking maybe we'll do this. How does that kind of affect the relationship? All of a sudden, does it like open the doors a little bit or, you know, when things come around again, like, are the companies stoked about that? It sort of opens the door. Like with Viz Media, um, we got Inuyasha, but um, I don't think they would have agreed to it if we didn't do well with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure because Megalobox we bombed, uh, but JoJo we blew out of the water. Um, and it's really what the, the big um, the negative effect of doing so well is when you want to renew the license, they go, <laughs> well, you said the minimum guarantee was 10000 but you made us 150000 so like, can't you start at like 40000 minimum guarantee? <laughs> And that's what happened with Rick and Morty. Our ten thousand yeah. turned into thirty thousand for the renew, and then that turned again to fifty thousand. And then if we renewed Rick and Morty this year, then that fifty would be a hundred thousand minimum guarantee. But in Rick and Morty's demand, I'm sure as a lot of people are watching this, uh, it kind of went the other direction. So yeah. yeah. Like I would continue Rick and Morty if it was like fifteen thousand minimum guarantee, not fifty, not thirty, and definitely not a hundred. So you have to take that into consideration. And then, so let's say if this, like the Rick and Morty license you guys have is coming to an end at a certain point, what does that actually mean for you guys as a company? So let's say you've got, you know, thousands of Rick and Morty products that you have and a license doesn't renew, you know, what, what happens at that point? We have a 60 to 90 day sell-off period. Usually sometimes like with Capcom, I think we have 120 sell-off day. Um, 
but um, yeah, we have like basically when the contract ends, manufacturing must stop, but you still have two to three months to sell what you have in inventory. And then you report that for the final royalties to be like, here you guys go. This is what we made during the sell-off period. Nice knowing you. Um, so, yeah, and if you can't sell all that stuff still, then legally you're supposed to throw it out. So, I mean, you guys deal with a lot. You have a lot of different properties, a lot of different inventory. You know, um, how do you manage things like that? Because as the company is growing, as Amazon's growing, I mean, we saw you guys have been doing Airbender for a couple of years, right? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Airbender's like the number one show on Netflix for I don't even know how long it was, a couple weeks or whatever. How do you... I think for like 20 weeks, they said. That's insane. I mean, it's amazing. I, it was the first time I had ever watched it and loved it and loved Korra. Um, but how do you... Like, how do you manage inventory? Like, what happens all of a sudden? Are you kind of keeping an eye out? Like, oh, hey, they're going to make a new live action series of Cowboy Bebop for Netflix. Or, um, as Daniel had asked kind of earlier, mentioned, like, the Ninja Turtles games potentially going to help you know there's a new game coming out do you track these kinds of things to go do we just stock up like crazy or is it sort of you know because you've got manufacturing times to to factor that could be four weeks eight weeks something crazy yep. could it be even longer like yeah how do you manage things like that it it's um i don't think we have we can right now i think because of the size of the company i just can't do that because you know we let's say um we did have the valiant license for bloodshot the movie and even though bloodshot film release got shortened because of covid there was we still had product on amazon and it still did not sell before during or afterwards so if we stocked up on bloodshot stuff for that movie we would have been screwed yeah um jojo's renewal for part six with jolene like that did see a minor surge invader zim's movie saw a huge surge hmm. like invader zim like jumped into the top three on amazon after enter the florpus came out on amazon uh netflix excuse me and um we couldn't match demand um and then it kind of like balanced out and it's slightly better than it was before the movie but it's almost the same and uh airbender like basically when we saw the surge coming uh we rushed in new product to get made for the holiday season but we had a bunch of product that we retired that we just brought back into manufacturing saying i mean we haven't made this since 2017 but 2020 is a little bit different go please we need stuff in the market now and that did work and then um Rick and Morty season four, we did, you know, I did prep work. We had stuff for the first half and no one bought it. You know, uh, I didn't see the season four episodes like I did for seasons two and three because unfortunately my contact, uh, Mike Mandel, he died. Um, he, I think he had a stroke. Um, Justin was devastated from that and uh, corporate, it was getting extremely corporate. All my contacts at Cartoon Network and Adult Swim either uh, got absorbed into Warner Brothers or let go. So um, I was not talking to the same people anymore. And basically, the guy, Leon, that was helpful um, at Cartoon Network that was approving everything with me, 
he just did like a mass approvals for like 30 SKUs. And I had no idea he was rushing to help me out being like a final, like hail Mary for me, like, like get these to market because it's going to be a nightmare after this. And that's what happened. It, it, but the uh, products didn't sell except for like three SKUs out of 30. And, uh, you know, we just came to the realization that there's no point in trying to beat the bootleggers and trying to beat uh, Spencer's gift to market when the numbers aren't even there. So um, I can't gauge when something is successful and when something isn't and just to be prepared. So, I mean, generally just kind of rolling the dice, you're like, hopefully this works. I mean, I think I forget who leaked it at the time, but, you know, obviously the Rick and Morty, the gap between you know, the last season four happened. And then there was that, what that teddy bear, Teddy Rick or something, you know, they're like trying to, it seemed like they were trying to recreate another pickle Rick moment, you know, in a sense of like, whoops, we leaked that Rick's going to be a teddy bear. Um, yeah. I know the bootleggers, you know, I mean, I know from, from working with you guys, I think was it season three, you know, there was stuff that was in production. Well, like months before. And then you guys were basically releasing it like the episode was done and you had, you know, two pins, you know, and I, Rick and Morty, I, I know cause there'd be tons of people that would email us as well was huge, fucking massive in like the yeah. bootleg market. Um, and how much, you know, like how much of that really like affects what you guys are doing? Is it, you know, okay, we kind of operate and live side by side or is it, you know, how, and what are your feelings kind of on that? Like, how does that really like affect you guys? The, the Rick and Morty success in general, like the bootleg market that, cause even when Jojo is hitting, you know, and hitting hard or I, you yeah. know, in the past year, I don't know how many airbender knock off everything's I've seen, you know, I mean, we got, we got our own bootlegs of the hexagon golds on Alibaba. Uh, um, it's a mix. Sometimes I get triggered and just want, I like take down that entire bootleg company. And sometimes I just, I just go, okay, whatever. Good luck selling that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just like things are going well for us and the brand recognition is growing exponentially. And it, it is getting to the point where people are getting defensive on, for us being like, I saw this on Mercari.com. Like what's going on here. And I'm like, that looks like a vendor just price gouging. It's a fe- it's official, but he's just going above the price. Um, if you can't find it anywhere else, go for it. Otherwise, find it somewhere else for cheaper. And that's a new thing, right? I mean, I know, I think Amazon is trying to crack down on a little bit, but <clears throat> people basically buy, you know, maybe these limited pins or do whatever, and then they're essentially listing them on eBay, on Macari, these other secondary selling sites, and then just trying to, like, jack up the cost. Right. And then we're the drop shipping. Like, is that becoming a thing that you guys are seeing a lot more? Is somebody like flipping? I know I've seen, I think, uh, was out at New York comic-con and at your booth. And I saw literally, you know, it was like minutes after the show opened and you had limited stuff. It's on eBay. Yep. Yeah, uh, I think it is happening more and more. You know, I have no issue with flippers. You know, look like if you put a camera on my desk, you would see piles of Magic the Gathering cards that I've had as a kid that I'm going to flip to probably build a nursery with. <laughs> um, so, like, I get it. You know, life has changed the past year and a half at this rate. So, like, if these people 
figured out a way to help them, you know, pay rent or just make a living, like, great. Uh, my only issue is when, like, my customers, like, I'm trying to give them the fair price and they poach from us before it gets to the customers. Um, because, um, look, you know, when you're on eBay, people aren't hating Microsoft for having Xbox Series X at twice the value. But I'm not, I'm not a billion-dollar company, and I'm trying to get the super fans the product um, first. And then it kind of like I kind of want the super fans to like us um, as much as they can, so that it helps you know our relationship with them helps the relationship with our brands. The brands are happy because the super fans are happy because they do care about that stuff. Um, and when our product is sold on like from a flipper. Uh, they they lose a bit of our like customer service. Like you know, if something's wrong, if the pin goes missing, or the pin arrives damaged, we'll we'll do our best to fix it or refund them, no problem. But if it's on eBay, like, and they get it all damaged, I don't want that to reflect on my company. Being like, oh, I got a shitty pin from eBay. <laughs> Forget this. I'm right. not going to their booth at New York Comic Con. So no, it's removing you. the brand experience that you guys are trying to create because, <clears throat> like you said, kind of. You guys are a brand, you're representing these properties, you're making your own, doing your own takes on these properties, but still it's brand, you know, and you want people to get that brand experience with you, buying direct with you, seeing all of that and kind of getting a, a general feel for what you guys do and how you guys do it differently than, like you said, like a fig pin or some of these other pin, pin trill or whatever. Um, so, I mean, what's next for you guys? Like, what's on it? Are you starting to put, you know, when do you start planning? holidays like what kind of what's coming up this year for for zen monkey that you guys are trying to do so i always like to try and make something unique that may or may not be seasonal like we're doing the limited edition emblems right now um to replace conventions and if it goes well we're probably just going to do it from like every three to four months from here on out no matter what if we go to a convention or not it's just something nice again for the super fans you know the casual fan is not going to buy a teenage robot pin for $16, but you know, the thousands of fans that are famished for product will. Um, so, you know, I want to make more stuff for them, but I also want to make stuff for Halloween because Halloween and pins like interconnect very well. But if approvals are slow and production is running behind schedule and then shipping it to places like Amazon, our clients, and then it just sits at, on a truck in Amazon before it gets uh, beeped into the system, that, that means we could miss the entire uh, season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's say uh, all of that is not a problem, but we have to get start you know, designing and ordering and come up with things now. So we might not have the budget ready for that either. So we have to factor in budgets and go, okay, these, these normal you know, Inuyasha gold hexagon pins are good year-round no matter what. They, we need to restock in them, or we can try and see what this jack-o'-lantern maybe does. So um, it's a trade-off. And like we did our like SpongeBob pins for Christmas came out, I want to say 2017, and they did terrible 2017 and 18, and then they did great 2019. Like hmm. it doesn't make sense. So um, yeah, I would love to do more of that stuff, you know, because Christmas and Halloween are big seasons for, you know, tchotchke little things to accessorize your clothing and be in, in the spirit of the season. Um, but if, if budget and everything else comes into mind, then I might just say, let's wait till next year. 
And with, you know, I'm still waiting for you guys to bring back those melty popsicles. Uh, like the Ninja Turtles and SpongeBob ones where like the eyes were all funky, uh, you know, just like the popsicles we all ate as kids and that they still sell. Uh, some of them, those were one of my favorite kind of weird limited things that you guys did. Um, and with working with a place like Amazon, cause you guys are doing the Amazon fulfillment, right? Um, so you make, let's say you make a thousand of a pin. Do you just send a thousand you just go oh let me send all thousand of these to amazon like how do you know can you just send anything you want there they hold it it ships out you know so um amazon uses a lot of algorithms so when you start um you're limited to like how many products and whatnot and how many things you can ship first of all i do fulfillment by amazon which means amazon amazon takes a huge cut of our sales Probably 48% of the listing goes to Amazon and the rest Oof. goes to us. <clears throat> but the quantity is so high that it, it just helps us no matter what. But um, when you're starting, like you can only ship if you're due for filling by Amazon a certain amount at a time. You can only, um, and you have a threshold of storage. Hmm. So the more you sell, your threshold goes up. Okay. So, um, you know, we sell so fast our product on Amazon that the late storage fees don't really activate for us. But for things that flop or things that just sit there, they it's it's called aging inventory. And aging inventory is a red flag for Amazon, which means it's a risk. So they start ramping up the late fees mm. so that one SKU, even though you have like 80 pins on there, like if you sit on it for three years and Amazon doesn't sell, they'll charge you like four hundred dollars or something, and that adds up. Especially so you just need to pull lot. it. Just you know, at a certain point, you're yeah. like, "This is dead. Get it out of there." Because like any fulfillment, right. any storage company, it's like the stuff is there. You know, like if right. it's sitting there, it's taking up space. Obviously, Amazon's got these massive warehouses, but it still takes up space. Um, so they just start basically hitting you to be like, "Get this, get this out of here." Right. Amazon is not, I, I think the best way to describe it is Amazon is not a fulfillment center. So they're a, they're a retail company. So they don't really factor in uh, storage fees. Um, if you do fulfillment by Amazon, okay. because they want that stuff out the door as fast as possible so that everyone makes money. But then, so that's good because if you find a product that you're selling that is selling, then they'll only take their cut. Um, after your item sells, which is a bigger, which was a lot better of a deal for us with fulfillment centers for our own site, where they would have a storage fee plus a fulfillment fee, and Amazon just does fulfillment fees and then okay. late storage fees. So um, um, basically, you know, our worst offenders might be a year old, and then like let's say one of the old diamond Lupin pins. You know, it says, um, if you don't dispose of this, you know, you're going to pay $1.30. Okay. And that's okay for us. You know, that's the kind of money we're making where we're like $1.30 fine. You know, some of them are like $0.10. Cents. Um, but every, like, you know, you'll find one that pops up that's like $200 and you're <laughs> like, dispose. Yeah, yeah. So um, you can't really just ship your entire inventory. Okay. And so also they basically have, tell you, like, like I said, just because you make a thousand, you can't send all one thousand there. They'll say, "Hey, we'll take forty. 
Yeah. So right now, after COVID, everyone is suppressed, basically. Um, and for every new SKU, you can ship a maximum of 200, which for us is perfect because, like, we, we don't go that high unless it's successful. So, But, you know, for bigger uh, <clears throat> vendors on Amazon that, you know, sell 10,000 units a month, that's a, that's an, a problem for them. Um, so everyone's suppressed to about 200 if it's a new SKU. And then after the sales are going well, then the analytics change. And that's why... Okay. For the holidays, we would ship 800 of a SKU so that by November, we have enough for the holidays. Okay. So if somebody has <clears throat> like their personal brand, you know, the stuff that they could sell on Amazon and they're, maybe they've got an Amazon store and they're shipping it themselves or think about fulfillment, like some of those things to really consider are, A, Amazon's going to take hefty fees basically in trade for being on this massive marketplace if they're going to store your stuff and then also that they may cap what you can send there. So they may be saying, you know, you're, you might be refilling Amazon constantly with, with the product instead of just being able to send it where like saying a, a regular fulfillment company might say, Hey, you you send us everything you have. We'll ship it. We charge you X for storage, X for whatever. Um, you know, because like looking at Amazon as a somebody that's got a personal brand of if that could be a good tool for them, like a good selling thing to be to have their stuff carried. Are there obviously with you doing the license stuff, it puts you in front of a good marketplace. But are there some other advantages you think of like a smaller independent seller that does have original product jumping in and trying to sell on on a place like Amazon? If they do fulfillment by merchant and follow the strict guidelines that Amazon has for those merchants, yeah, because you don't have a fulfillment fee anymore and you don't have to worry about late storage fees or old storage fees. Uh, you just have listing fees. So you will get a much better cut if you do it yourself. But you know that also means you're going to get people being like, I never got my item or this is damaged or this is not what I ordered. All that stuff is now on you. Um but yes, it's kind of like getting, it's at the point where if you're not doing, if you're not on Amazon, then what are you doing? If you're not on like Walmart or Target, like, like how good of a company can you really be? Um, you know, you got to factor in like, I think Generation Z and the youngest millennials, they'll go to Etsy, they'll go on Instagram shops, they'll go on Shopify shops. But a lot of um, older millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, like they'll go instinctively to Amazon to see if it's available, use their Prime account, and just get free shipping yeah. to them and get it to them in a day. So, um, yes, we. It took us this year. We're nine years old, and I think this is our this is our fourth year on Amazon. Okay. So you know, it took us a long time for us to go. You know what? Well, let's. Because, you know, when we're doing just shirts, that's a whole new ballpark because, you know, of all the dimensions a shirt takes on the shelf and the uh, listings of every size with a pin, you know, one size fits all. So once we really had a foothold and started really getting things to work with pins, we said we should probably really consider getting on Amazon. And it, it worked right away for us. You know, the key, the, we did the, either we did the right keywords or the fact that, you know, uh, the only Rick and Morty pins that were on Amazon at the moment were bootlegs or generic faces from the other accessory companies. But uh, yeah, it, it picked up. And then 
Amazon has like a snowball effect. When people look at your listing and people buy from you, then more people are going to be able to see that. And then more people buy it. And then the, the ratings come in and the ratings actually bump it up even more. So yeah, if you get a three and a half out of five star reviewed because you know the post broke off, it still makes other people go, at least they got that pin. You know, maybe I won't get a b- broken post. But, yeah, uh, yeah. At least I'm not getting nothing. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting because, you know, like I said, I think licensing, and especially with pins and with the fan art and just in general in the indie art world, the idea of somebody getting into licensing and, and doing that and, and being successful with it, it just seems – almost like a, so far out of reach that it's just not attainable. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that, that you've proven that you did, you started with something, you know, that, that seemed attainable. I mean, you know, even at the time, it's like you look at it now and you're like, oh, Fraggle Rock was 15000 But, you know, you started with something like that and you guys are still a family, a, a smaller business, and you've got these massive properties. And I think it's like a really great story to see that, it is attainable. Like you can, if you, if you go through with and follow the vision of what you want to do, that it can happen. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing kind of like your journey with that. And I'm definitely excited to see what you guys keep doing and, and, and what, you know, other, what properties come next for you, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, if a person is able to look up the licensing expo and, buy plane tickets and take their samples of what they've accomplished, give it a go. I mean, I've seen people do exactly that. I don't know if any of them got work or got licenses, but they tried. Right. And if you, if you try and, you know, have something that is not even pins, but just something that you believed in, uh, someone might say yes. And then, you know, the company might say like, well, we got, uh, like, what's the difference between you and, like, Threadless? Right. What's the difference between you and, um, that? what's that stupid print-on-demand company that I don't even know because they're so bad? That could be any of them. Them. <laughs> yeah. Those people. Redbubble or uh, one of those? I don't... Worse than Redbubble. Oh, okay. Cafe Press. Uh, oh, Cafe Press. I had a Press, meeting yeah. at the Licensing yeah. Expo the first year I did it, and... Uh, the woman that works for Warner Brothers was like, well, what's the difference between you and Cafe Press? We do stuff with Cafe Press all the time. So I'm like, this isn't going to work. Yeah, you're like, I, I'm not actually interested anymore in Warner Brothers. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, for anybody that's checking this out, We're gonna it'll be up on Twitch for the next two weeks. And then we will have it over on our YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. I guess I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Have a good night. Are. Later. All right. Creative Labs by Alchemy with your host, Greg Kerr. Are you interested in making enamel pins, washi tape, patches, acrylic keychains, and more? Get in touch and create with us at alchemymerch.com.